Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this episode, I sit down and chat with Robert Habermeyer about consensus algorithms. How do they work? What are all these terms people are throwing around? Tune in to find out. I am sat here with Robert Habermeyer, if I pronounce that correctly, uh, aka Rob, as I know him. And Rob works for Parity Technologies as uh, CoreDev and uh, lead researcher, so has a very wide area of knowledge and is uh, the guy that I know that is best at uh, consensus stuff. And that's what we'll be talking about today. So uh, welcome to the show, Rob. Thanks, Frederick. Thanks for having me here. Would you say consensus algorithm or mechanism? A an algorithm. I think it's really more of an algorithm. <laughs> so I that's kind of what I say intuitively, but I try to make myself say consensus mechanism because it includes the programming algorithm to make this happen, but also the, like the game theoretic incentive layers to make it, you know, work in the real world. And so there's like it goes a little bit beyond just the computer science algorithm. And I try to say mechanism, but I don't know what the common term is. No, I mean, that's that's true. So, like, there's the consensus algorithm and the consensus mechanism, if you're speaking in terms of uh, mechanism design, which is like game theory done backwards, yeah. uh, where instead of analyzing a system to see where the equilibria lie for rational players, you're uh, trying to create a system that has specific kinds of, of behaviors incentive for, for every player. We're talking about consensus, and what that kind of means so there's consensus you know in in general english terms of like agreeing on something but there's consensus in computer science terms which actually means something very specific and um i usually say that what bitcoin's innovation was was to achieve global distributed consensus so they like no one else really had achieved a global consensus on anything uh, whereas here, like Bitcoin was the first to do that, and what it achieved consensus on was, you know, an, an in integer belonging to a private key. So let's dig into this concept of consensus and and how it applies to blockchain. So, Rob, what's your like high level take on what consensus is? Yeah, consensus in general. When we have a consensus algorithm, we're trying to have different parties come to an agreement on a value in a way that's uh, predictable. Um, we have different classes of consensus algorithms in terms of fault tolerance, whether they can tolerate some group of the people, some portion of the people who are supposed to be coming to consensus, uh, misbehaving or disappearing. Uh, so we can split up consensus algorithms into those different classes. So, right. So there's been lots of previous work on this, obviously, uh, consensus algorithms aren't a new thing and um, you know anyone kind of digging into databases and consensus will probably have seen raft or paxos or one of these things that are um, you know have been around for a long time and is used in in like normal day-to-day -day applications that you probably use but the the difference is sort of when you go into the blockchain space you go into a very adversarial atmosphere so 
like you have to assume that there's a bunch of people trying to attack your network and make it fail and um who like you want this network to be open so like anyone can join the network which is something different from how like if facebook is running a consensus algorithm they're just running on their own servers and they know what the parameters are but in a blockchain network it's open and anyone can join so this is where like the byzantine fault tolerance comes in byzantine meaning that like it, it can misbehave in any way uh yeah so so originally i would say consensus algorithms were meant to be or intended to be applied to uh this problem of splitting a database across multiple computers and just allowing clients of that database to uh write to it and read from it and then obtaining consensus over uh what the latest data that has been written is uh and we have roughly the same problem in blockchains it's just that usually we don't have a fixed number of participants and we also have lots and lots of people over the world probably trying to issue writes and reads so uh one aspect of of blockchains is that users need to be able to follow that the consensus process has been correctly carried out throughout history which imposes an additional restriction on us from uh the the database scenario where you could just delete all the records or proofs that consensus has actually been obtained over something a month or a year ago uh, in a blockchain you have to be able to follow all the way from the very beginning of time uh everything that has happened and that those changes have been validated in some sense so when we dig into like consensus algorithms there's a bunch of terms being thrown around that i don't think are very clear what they mean to any outsider um the most common one i guess is cap theorem but that that's kind of a wide thing not really applying to consensus per se but like more databases in general um, but there's also like safety and liveness and i al- already mentioned like byzantine fault tolerance um let's maybe dig into uh, those things a little bit and and define what they actually mean so first up safety what what is safety in a consensus algorithm uh so safety is that when we reason about a consensus algorithm we say that it's committing values so a value that has been committed is one that's been agreed upon by the the parties taking part in in the consensus process so safety is that you never commit to conflicting values right that consensus is a consensus on a single value that isn't contradicting any of the other ones which have been placed you know that uh, if we frame it in terms of money that i can uh if i have five units of money that i can issue either a transaction that sends all of them to frederick or i can send a transaction that sends all of them to somebody else but i can't do both uh that would be a safety failure right so the way i think about it is that there's not there's never like two blocks that are equally valid so to speak but that's not always like the case if you look at bitcoin there may be several blocks that are committed at the same um difficulty and you know it's just a matter of which one the next miner builds upon is the one that essentially like becomes the true thing and that we kind of go into fork choice rules which we can cover later but essentially safety to me means that the algorithm the mechanism being used eventually like agrees on a single block as the source of truth even if there are multiple valid ones like 
just one source of truth. So I'd say that Bitcoin as a consensus system actually doesn't really need to fulfill these properties. It doesn't really ever commit anything. It only probabilistically commits things uh, that we can say this block is really, really likely not to be reverted. But of course, it always could be in the event of a 51% attack. Um, so Bitcoin, I'm not really sure this proof of work scheme actually really falls under that umbrella of consensus algorithms, but rather under the um, incentive layer, purely on that incentive layer, uh, where we have to deal with things like fork choice rules. Because if um, uh, consensus systems actually, because they have the safety property, they never fork, right? As long as you assume that this safety property will hold, you don't need a fork choice rule because it will never fork. But then when we try to introduce incentives, then you can have forks. Right. Some, something you talked about there is, is another term that comes up very often, which is called finality. And like you said, Bitcoin has probabilistic finality. Basically, you can say that after X amount of time, it is so unlikely that another person will build a chain that's longer. So we call it you know, final and committed. Um, but it's never really 100% final. Yeah. And I mean, nothing, nothing ever really is 100% final, right? In the real world, it's not. So that probabilistic finality is really about as good as you can reasonably get uh, without strengthening your assumptions. Right. So in a, in a system like Raft or Paxos or whatever, you could say that you have finality within you know, the bounds of network time or whatever, um, because you can always assume that the hosts either behave well or they crash com completely. Like they either participate nicely or they don't participate at all. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that as long as you're operating within the bounds of those assumptions, uh, then the system will work. But in the real world, you could have everything just go down. And yeah. uh, then your safety and liveness properties. Uh, we haven't talked about liveness yet, actually. But then your safety property wouldn't hold. So, so liveness is the other coin of consensus algorithms, which is first we want to make sure that with safety that conflicting values or transactions or blocks or whatever aren't committed. But liveness is to make sure that we can always commit something new. So that new transactions can still be included, that the system doesn't deadlock. Uh, so a simple example of, of deadlock uh, would be if, if all the participants stopped participating, then obviously nothing would be committed anything anymore so this is beyond the bounds of the assumptions that are usually worked in uh, but we want to show usually that within those bounds uh, that it's impossible to say get a 50 50 split that never resolves that uh, half of the people who are coming to consensus say it's value a and half of them say it's value b and neither of them will budge right so if you look at um something like bitcoin uh, or proof of work in general you have liveness because you can always produce a new block. But there's really nothing that guarantees that any transactions are included in that block, right? When you talk about liveness in a blockchain context, I've, I've heard people say that it means your transaction will eventually be included. Well, yeah, um, for a user, yeah, that's a reasonable assumption. Uh, but again, I think this falls in the incentive layer, which is that when we speak about the intrinsic validity of a value in a consensus system, unless we impose some additional constraint there that a valid block, say, has transactions in it, then it's possible to have a live system that never commits any blocks containing transactions. Uh, but then when we move on to this economic incentives layer, we want to make it uh, 
the desired behavior that someone who proposes a block to be committed, say, has that block containing transactions. So we talk about these layers, like how would you, what layers would you say are included in a blockchain consensus mechanism? Well, really, I would bring it down just to these, uh, perhaps a networking, then an agreement, then a an incentives layer. Uh, but you could argue that the networking and agreement are, are one and the same. So networking simply being uh, the ability to pass messages between authorities or, or participants in that consensus process. Uh, this is actually really, really crucial to the design of the process. Uh, what assumptions you take there about how long it takes messages to be delivered or whether they get delivered at all or out of order or they must be in order, etc., cetera, uh, really changes the way that you design a consensus system and also imposes additional constraints on how many actors can be malicious. So when we speak about how many actors can be malicious, this is really an assumption, right? So uh, we just take this as an assumption in the consensus layer that, well, for whatever reason, no more than one-third of participants will be faulty. Now, the incentives layer is to strengthen that assumption, to provide a basis for that assumption. So it's not simply an assumption, uh, but based purely on uh, a weaker assumption that all participants are rational and that they take the actions which result in the best outcomes for themselves. That makes sense. So the networking layer kind of informs the algorithm that you can build because you have real-world constraints there. And it almost acts as a little bit of a, a middleware between like the, the pure algorithm, the theory of it, and the incentives. I think you're right that thinking of the networking stuff and the algorithm in general is thinking of them as the same as useful. Because this is, like, like you're saying, they're so cru crucial to get right and have sort of make sure that your algorithm isn't making an assumption like, you know, all nodes are in sync, in perfect sync, or that there are no uh, relay times or whatever. Um, you, you need to build your al algorithms with that in mind. Yeah, those are those are very strong assumptions, uh, and it's it's very hard to when we try to put this into practice to to make those hold. Uh, on the flip side, so the the weakest network assumption you can have is what we would call an asynchronous network, which is that messages may never arrive and they may arrive out of order. And technically, if you have a BFT, a Byzantine fault-tolerant consensus algorithm that builds on a an asynchronous network assumption, that's the weakest network assumption, that this algorithm is actually very, very strong. But if you try to put it into practice, there's no way that you can actually build this asynchronous network. Like We always have to reintroduce things like timeouts and what have you at the software layer. Uh, so once you reconcile with that it's it's not always the best choice for efficiency to choose an algorithm designed for an asynchronous network because it means that actually you, you might have to be doing additional steps because in practice your network has much stronger uh, assumptions behind it so bitcoin is an asynchronous no uh so so um bitcoin proof of work is is actually a synchronous network uh, where it assumes that the time for blocks to propagate is, or for messages to propagate through the network, is the block time. So this is the same as, as in Ethereum or other proof-of-work-based systems. Uh, and we can see that pretty easily. Like We talk a lot about a 51% attack in Bitcoin, 
But the fact is, if you can introduce what we would call a, a network partition, uh, you can actually overcome the Bitcoin network with only 33%. Mm. So it's synchronous because... There's a reliance on time and um, sort of the block propagation. Once a block is propagated, you start building on that block instead of just like keep mining on what you were mining on before. Yeah. Um, what, what, but what is an example then of something that is asynchronous? Does that mean you don't really care at all about what other blocks have been introduced so far? Or how does that work? The synchronicity assumption has the most effect on things like fork choice rules, uh, where if for whatever reason, like let's let's take a proof of work network, and it's taking longer than a certain amount of time for uh, a block to propagate to you, then somebody can give you a worse block, right? And for whatever reason, that gets to you faster. And all of a sudden, you're starting to build on this, this worse block. So the network partition there is really guiding the behavior of the rest of the network. And as soon as that 10 minutes assumption uh, falls apart, it's, it's, it's not even uh, just about building blocks, but also evaluating uh, blocks, how, how good blocks are relative to other blocks or how valid they are. So the whole network will start to get a, a, a wrong view of the state of the network, of the state of the chain, uh, as soon as that synchronicity assumption starts to fall apart. So an asynchronous network is, um, I would say, one that makes progress as soon as it is possible to make progress, and no sooner. But that means that it, it does, from an objective standpoint, it does halt when there's no chance to make progress. So if you look at uh, something like Bitcoin under a network partition or Ethereum under a network partition, people are still issuing blocks. It's just that eventually this fork will resolve on both sides of that partition if you split the whole network 50-50. In an asynchronous network, it's literally not possible to make any kind of even prospective process, which means that it's locking you in very strongly to this assumption of the network and also of, of how many people are misbehaving, whereas in practice, it, it may not be quite, quite that strong and you're unnecessarily delaying actions in the network. What are some examples of asynchronous uh, consensus mechanisms? So the one that I'm really a fan of is uh, Honey Badger BFT. I can't really think of if I know of any others which are purely asynchronous. Uh, there's lots that are what we would call weakly synchronous, which is in practice basically the same, which is that messages are eventually delivered, but you know could be 100 years from now or uh, at the end of time. So it <laughs> doesn't make that much of a difference in practice. Uh, but Honey Badger BFT is an example of a purely asynchronous BFT agreement process. And this works through basically running, everybody submits some small amount of transactions that they would like to be included in a block, uh, but they encrypt them. And then they use uh, some special, what we would call erasure coding, where uh, you, you can split up a message into smaller pieces that say three of five of those pieces can be used to recover the original message. And they come to a lot of smaller agreements over exactly which of those groups of transactions have made it to everybody. And then once all of those smaller agreements conclude, we construct a block out of all those little bundles of transactions that everybody knows that everybody else has. Interesting. I don't think... Digging, digging into it further, even though I want to, is probably not good for a voice-only yeah, audience. Sadly, you you kind of need some illustrations here. Uh, but 
Do you know of any blockchain project that is trying to apply Honey Badger B of T? No, not other than the the Honey Badger authors themselves. Uh, the thing is that it's actually very sensitive to the batch size of transactions that everybody is allowed to submit uh, in in order to analyze the communication complexity. That's how much communication uh, relative to the number of participants that actually has to be taken on in order to reach consensus. And it's very sensitive to that batch size being under a certain amount, like how many transactions each person can put forward. And if you, you grow that too much, then the communication complexity will just explode. Yeah. So this is, I've, I've talked on this podcast before about uh, PBFT, so Practical Byzantine Fault Tolerance, um, which is an algorithm. I highly encourage reading the paper because it's very simple to understand and, and kind of easy to get into. But um, it's the exact same problem there when there's too many members trying to agree on something. Um, I think the communication, like the number of messages scales exponentially. Or I think it's um, quadratically. Yeah, okay. Quadratically. Anyway, so fast that it becomes intractable once you have like over 100 whatever participants. Yeah, yeah PBFT is, is very common. There's lots of PBFT derivatives. Uh, for example, Tendermint is, is very close to PBFT but applied to the, the blockchain space. Uh, and it, it's just a, a, a few-phase consensus protocol where somebody puts forward a proposal. Uh, then we have a phase where everybody evaluates the validity of it. And then once everybody has seen those that other people think it's valid, then they cast commit votes. And once there are enough of those, the block is committed and you go on to the next one. So we, we mentioned a couple of times uh, fork choice rules. So what's a fork choice rule? A fork choice rule is essentially a way of determining that um, the network as a whole will build on top of the best block. I mean, how do you really evaluate validity or, or uh, how do you compare blocks, right? So you can, if you're given two blocks, you can say this one is better because it's newer, maybe. Uh, you could say this one is better because it has a higher number, that it's like the 10th block instead of the 5th. Uh, and you can get very complicated with that. Uh, but essentially, it's just a way of ensuring that if most of the network has seen any two given blocks, that they choose the correct one to build on or to, to, to treat as their local view of the consensus. So for Bitcoin, the fork choice rule, and I had to look this up, is that it picks the longest chain. And this may sound like you can just produce a really long chain with really low difficulty, but uh, the Bitcoin difficulty updates every 2016 blocks or something like that. And um, the diff so the difficulty is actually like set for a period. And if you produce a block with a lower difficulty, you won't like be propagated. It's not, not, not a valid block. So essentially, you just always pick the longest chain. And that's a super simple fortress rule. And in, in Ethereum, uh, you pick the chain with the highest total difficulty because there the difficulty actually updates like is it per block yeah the gift the the difficulty slowly changes uh each block based on the the block times in in the recent past so uh in in ethereum we use this total difficulty uh because the block times are much shorter so essentially this this longest chain rule works really well in bitcoin because we have such long block times which means there are network synchrony assumption of say 10 minutes is much weaker than a network synchrony assumption for Ethereum's block time of 15 seconds. So if you have a, a current difficulty in Bitcoin, 
and you try to build a chain that's longer than the rest of the network, you won't be able to do that quickly at all because the difficulty is so high it'll take you forever to build that chain relative to the rest of the network. But if the rest of the network, for whatever reason, didn't see the blocks that the rest of the that the main mining group was building, uh, you could fool them. So with Ethereum, that network delay to give them blocks mined locally that are that is a longer chain than what the rest of the network is producing is is a much lower time bound. So that's the fork choice rules of Bitcoin and Ethereum, which are longest chain and highest total difficulty. When we move into sort of other and when we can talk about this in a little bit, um, other consensus mechanisms like proof of stake or proof of authority, what becomes of the fork choice rule? And like, does it become more complicated or uh, is, it, is it still simple or like what happens to that? Is it even necessary? I, w- I would classify proof of stake purely as happening on this uh, incentive layer and that it can happen on top of proof of authority or proof of work. So intuitively, it can easily, more easily happen on a, a proof of authority network where you're running something like uh, PBFT or Tendermint uh, or another consensus algorithm we might talk about called Aura, where you have this group of people who are allowed to issue blocks and you use stake bond deposits to keep them honest. Uh, so in those cases, the fork choice rule doesn't really change. In proof of work, we can use uh, proof of stake to add an extra group of bonded people who essentially are required to say what the canonical block hashes in the recent past are. And this is used to power a reversion limit in that fork choice rule. Uh, take take Bitcoin or Ethereum right now, that if somebody had more mining power than the rest of the network combined, and locally they started building a chain from the genesis, eventually it would overtake the rest of the chain. And they could then publish that and everybody would go through this whole chain reorganization where they discarded the head of the chain as they know it now and move to that new head that uh, was produced by the attacker. Now, with this proof of stake incentive layer, that won't happen uh, because people on that chain that the rest of the network had would see, okay, these staked parties have already said this block hash is valid. And if they trust them, they won't reorganized to any forks which required deletion of that block right so it's like uh an addition to the fork choice rule where you say where i'm going to pick the chain with the highest total difficulty but only that goes as far back as the latest you know checkpoint produced by the proof of stakers yeah so it only accepts forks which contain a block a certain block yeah uh, and that block is constantly being advanced by the, the proof of stake. So this is basically how Casper, the friendly finality gadget, works for Ethereum. And the finality slash reversion limits are also useful in proof of authority chains. Uh, although really you already have some sense of finality in, in proof of authority that in Tendermint, say, we have this safety property after one block. That every block that is produced is supposed to be unique and non-conflicting with any other block at that height. So like, there's only one possible block at any given height. Uh, so obviously you don't accept any forks. But the interesting thing is that proof-of-stake incentive mechanisms then can induce a fork choice on that because uh, you can actually add forks into the system through proof-of-stake that allow you to recover from a malicious validator set. So the people in Tendermint, say, who are supposed to be issuing blocks aren't, and the network grinds to a halt. So in proof of stake, 
with those incentive layers, you can have a um, a recovery process for sh- uh, bringing in a new set of authorities who are meant to issue blocks and having the rest of the network recognize that and reorganize onto this other other chain. So what's on what's on your radar? What do you look at? What do you feel interested in uh, in this space right now? Obviously, proof of stake is the the up and coming consensus algorithm du jour, and what we believe like blockchains will move to in the future. And there's like a hundred variants on it. Um, but is there anything that you've read within that that's like caught your eye, or that you're that you feel like oh, it would be cool to experiment with this? I think what I'm really interested in these days is if we can create consensus algorithms which are tailored to that specific problem of blockchains, right? So uh, proof of work does this, uh, especially if you take into account like the total difficulty. Uh, but if you're just taking an algorithm like PBFT or Honey Badger, um, these think about each consensus decision as a completely independent process, essentially. And... The fact is that in a blockchain, we have more information, right? So if you build a block on top of another block, you're intrinsically saying that that block that you built on top of and all the blocks before it are valid. And I think that's a really powerful tool that uh, can be incorporated into to consensus algorithms in order to make them uh, perhaps perform faster uh, to help us attain a balance between that instant finality of bft and the probabilistic finality of something like proof of work i've been reading a bunch of proof of stake stuff recently as well and um, i mentioned this problem before with like pbft that you can't have a validator set that grows beyond a certain limit it just becomes intractable so if you want to apply pbft to the blockchain space you kind of have to take your entire validator set which is anyone that has staked anything and somehow choose a subset of these people to run this algorithm. And uh, the way you choose the subset is super important. I mean, that that's sort of what makes this, um, like you said, what makes it tailored to blockchain. And I've seen many approaches, like delegated proof of stake is essentially, you know, pick the top 10, 100, whatever people that have the most stake or the most stake delegated to them. Um, but there's also other schemes where, uh, like Definity, everyone is stakes the same amount or every sort of identity stakes the same amount and you pick randomly a subset from that group. But I, I haven't seen anything that is like, that has blown my mind and is like something that I, you know, this is definitely the future and everyone is going to be using this. But what do you? What would you say is like the most likely way we're going to go down that path of choosing uh, a validator set? Because I think inevitably, in any proof of stake system, you need to choose some validator set from the entire population. You definitely need to choose. Like, if we want to get away from this fully anonymized, just cranking on a, a GPU kind of consensus approach, then you do need to pick leaders. But I'm not sure if that necessarily they have to come from some uh, fixed set. So, for example, there's a, a, a paper called Algorand where every person in the entire ecosystem can be the next leader. Uh, and that's determined purely with a, like a local uh, cryptographic signature of essentially the last block. 
As far as the incentive layer goes, I don't know how much better we can get in something like uh, DPoS, where uh, we end up with a fairly small uh, core council and very high percentage of funds on the chain being locked, which corresponds to the security of the chain. Uh, but as far as how that council is used in order to reach consensus, whether it uses something like PBFT or Tendermint uh, or another algorithm, I think that's where we'll have the most flexibility uh, and, and the easiest way to get wins uh, for blockchains because those algorithms just aren't really tailored for uh, the blockchain space. Thank you very much for coming on the show and talking uh, to me about this super interesting topic. It's one definitely one of my favorite topics. There's so much to dig into here, and I don't know how much is suitable for a podcast because, like I said before, you kind of want illustrations, and I don't know, maybe we'll do a video someday. <laughs> to any of our listeners, if you have feedback or have any questions on this topic, please go ahead and, uh, go ahead and send them. You can send them to hello at zeroknowledge.fm, go to the site and use the contact form or send them to us on Twitter. And uh, again, Rob, thank you very much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for listening. Thanks.